It is good to be with you this morning. We're rocking a little here. I don't know if it's the ground or if it's the actual podium itself. There we go. Something like that. So I'm excited to be with you today as we continue uh, our journey of faith-seeking understanding and introduction to Christian theology. Uh, I saw a few books uh, a few weeks ago when I was here with T.C. Ham. This is the book that we're basing our class on and roughly following the uh, course structure on. Um, and I'm here for a few weeks, and then we get the rabbis, and then we get another, right? We keep going uh, with different teachers. But uh, these few weeks, I will be speaking on Revelation, not the book of Revelation. I know, right? You're like, didn't he just do that? I'm very confused. I know, right? Right? We're going we're gonna to just uh, yeah, get everything out of it. No. So this is in the spring and over summer, um, we were talking about capital R Revelation as in the book of Revelation. Um, and this week and next, we're going to talk about little r Revelation, the revealing of God, right? Uh, and I'm trying a new tactic and trying not to do PowerPoint. Um, things I was just reading this last year, uh, they were saying PowerPoint's really great if you want your students to remember nothing. Um, right? It's great for visuals if you have pictures, any sorts of words or that kind of stuff. The students will always say, well, I can go back to that. So they never retain it. Right? So I'm trying something new, hoping that we can retain it. Um, and that, that is not to, at all to criticize T.C. Ham. I loved his PowerPoint stuff. I'm trying a new tactic for me, right? So, um, to each his own. But before we jump in this morning, um, can we pray together? Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, for an opportunity to be together to consider the ways that you are leading us, the ways that you are calling us, the ways that you have revealed yourself to us. Without you revealing yourself to us, Lord, we would still be without any knowledge of who you are. And we uh, hope that that realization can sink into our very bones and help us to be appreciative that you took the first step to knowing us, to loving us. May that truth resonate in our hearts this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm not, pre I'm not talking to the, about the book of Revelation, but one thing about the, the series and the class that I taught uh, last spring on Revelation can be helpful today. Just in the very basic um, definition of the word Revelation. The term generally refers to an unveiling, an uncovering, or a disclosure of something previously hidden or unknown, right? So for the book of Revelation and for the term revelation in general. And um, the effect of these revelatory experiences on our lives can be dramatic, and they could possibly change the way we think about the world, or the way we live our lives. Not sure what that was. Um, so I've got a, a story here. I, I should ask, is it, has anyone picked up this book? I know one. Okay. So I'm not going to be, um, I just want to see if I'm going to be regurgitating everything you already know or if it's, it's helpful to interact with the text. So that's helpful. So um, Flannery O'Connor uh, was an author of the last century and one of her stories called uh, Revelation 
funnily enough, right? And everything that must converge. Um, Migliori quotes this, and I just want to read this to you because it's, I think it can be helpful and demonstrate what we mean here when we mean revelation. So Flannery O'Connor depicts an event of revelation in a way that points to deeper theological meaning of the term. She tells the story of Mrs. Turpin. Anyone know the story, Mrs. Turpin? It was new for me. So Mrs. Turpin is a hard-working, upright, church-going farmer's wife who is unexpectedly accosted by a mentally disturbed teenage girl in a doctor's office. And if you're looking, I'm on page 22. And after um, bearing Mrs. Turpin's superior attitude and demeaning remarks about white trash and blacks as long as she could, the girl, the girl suddenly throws a heavy book at Mrs. Turpin, begins to strangle her, and calls her a warthog from hell. Her words, not mine. When Mrs. Turpin returns to her farm, she cannot get these girls' words out of her mind. Standing beside her pig pen, she is outraged by being called a warthog. She knows she's a good person, far superior to white trash and blacks. What did you send me a message like that for? She angrily asks God. But as she stares into the pig pen, she has a glimpse of the very heart of mystery and begins to absorb some abysmal life-giving knowledge. And she has a vision of a parade of souls marching to heaven with white trash, blacks, lunatics, and other social outcasts up front and respectable people like her at the rear of the procession. The shocked expressions on their faces showing that all their virtues are being burned away. And Mrs. Turpin returns to her house with the shouts of hallelujah from the heaven-bound saints in her ears. And as O'Connor's story suggests, revelation is not something that confirms what we already know. That's not revelation. Basically, it has to do with a knowledge of God and ourselves that is utterly surprising utterly disturbing and it is an event that shakes us to the core although it comes as a gift offering us a glimpse of the very heart of mystery it is resisted because it is so threatening and it's so frightening the knowledge it conveys is an abysmal life-giving knowledge but it also demands a kind of death because it turns upside down the lives of people who receive it Revelation compels momentous decisions about who God is and how we are to understand the world and ourselves. Okay. So I like the story of Mrs. Turpin, right? Um, because I think we all probably know a Mrs. Turpin or two, right? And um, so it's easy to say, well, when is she just going to wake up and realize that she's not better than those other people? And those people are going to, you know, we can have those thoughts, but those are outwardly focused. How do we, how do we change that so the revelation is about us, right? Uh, and I think that's one of, the, one of the beauties. So growing up in the Southern Baptist Church, right, we gave testimonies a lot. And some, you know, some seemed a little exaggerated more than others. Um, and... You know, there were just far too many people who were doing drugs and, you know, all, all these sorts of things. They're like, really? You? I don't know about that. Anyways, but 
um, there's this sense in, in the, the experience of t- giving a testimony. It's that that's where I was and God has brought me out of that. And I think there has been a, a life-changing moment. It's momentous. It's receiving of, of new knowledge that has changed my life. That's what revelation is all about. It's not just about facts. It's about something that changes your whole life and an, your outlook on the world and on God and everyone else, right? So have you ever had a moment in your life when something was revealed that changed your whole outlook or per- perception? So I'll give a few examples and then I want to turn you loose for a few minutes to talk at tables and see if you can come up with something like this. So what about when someone um, throws you a surprise party but but along the way in the preceding weeks they had to tell all these little white lies that didn't quite make sense and then the surprise party happens and you're like, oh, everything finally makes sense. Why you said all those things, why you kept that from me, why you said don't go there, don't do this. It finally makes sense after the big reveal. You've got a surprise party, right? That's one example. I want to know if we have more examples. So I want to let you loose for just a few minutes. Again, consider and talk at your tables, right? Um, And dig deep. Have you ever had a moment in your life when something was revealed? Maybe just one little basic thing, but that it completely changed your outlook, your perspective, your perception of the world, people, God, anything. Go. So who feels like they can share a story of revelation when something came to light in your life that completely changed your outlook in big or small ways, right? Remember the example I gave was a surprise party? All those white lies finally made sense, right? You had a surprise party. So what about for any of you? What revelation do you want to share that changed your, changed your perspective? We didn't get past what what a a life-changing revelation, a loss of a loved one or a a child or a father, mother, spouse. It's it's one of those life-changing things that that reveal what's life all about. It can also help to reveal the dynamics of the family that's, you know, left behind, right? Without this person here in our lives, what do the rest of us look like? What does life look like from now on? Yeah. It doesn't have to be as, as, as big and dramatic as, as a death in the family. I'm talking anything from the looking in the mirror to... Uh-oh. Oh, no. <laughs> I went on the Mission West trip a couple... Oh, it's been many years ago. And one, we were staying in a school... And one day, Kathy Kettlewell and I decided to clean the ladies' room, and we scrubbed that thing down, like, worked all day. We were sweating, at least I was. And later in the day, um, the principal of the school allowed this other group to come stay. And my first thought was, our clean bathroom. And then I, I didn't say that out loud, but then I realized what a, you know, how much you take ownership of things that are not even yours and that attitude of uh, this is mine because I worked on it and that instead of thinking 
You know, I mean, I did do a little shift and think, well, wasn't that a blessing that we cleaned the bathroom and it's ready for this next group of people? <laughs> but it was not a good moment. Made me realize a little bit about what a rotten wretch I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think of when I think of Judy Smith, rotten wretch. No, my goodness. My goodness. Okay, anyone else want to share? Oh. I didn't think of this when we were talking, but um, it's taking me uh, time to uh, understand and grow in God's love. And I think a lot of that is still really evolving, but a lot of it's because of all the arguments and things I would have in my own mind about, oh, maybe, you know, the way people are, the way the world is. But when I stepped away and heard to look outside of my mind, but look at the beauty of the world, look at the, the things that God's done in music and the sights and how we all are and our goodness. It really just was such an uplifting moment for me, and it was beautiful. There. Thank you. Thank you. Fred? Since you're the theological expert oh. this morning, wow. I have a question for you. Yes? For those of us who were raised from infancy in the church and in the faith, is there something wrong with us if we can't think of a specific revelatory experience? I don't think so. Um, Yeah, everyone got the question. Everyone heard it. So I don't think that there's, using your own words, there's something wrong with uh, you or anyone who's grown up in the church and can't claim that kind of same revelatory experience. But I think it's, um, but but you have changed in your faith since you were a child. Yes? Evolution. Okay. But evolution does take, sometimes uh, evolution uh, is a small thing. Sometimes it's a big thing. And and it may be more than, it takes five, more than five minutes to figure out what that is for you. What was that, what were those bigger steps in evolution that maybe some of your peers or friends did not take in their journey of faith, right? Um, so um, other examples, I'll throw these out because I put these down here. Um, when you look in the mirror, I'll come back to theology in a moment, but I want to just, these are just everyday revelatory experiences. When you look in the mirror, you see more gray hairs than you used to, or you see less hair at all, right? Um, does that reveal something to you? I'm looking at everyone. I'm just looking around the room without looking at anyone. <laughs> or what about when you find out that your kids are going to start having children, or your grandchildren are going to start having children? Does that make you feel... If you didn't know that, would you be any older? No, but does it make you feel older? Those types of things do, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I'm so old, I've got grandchildren who are having kids. That's, that's a pretty big change, right? But your age is still the same, but it's how you feel about it, it's how you receive it. Roger, let me bring the mic over here. Yeah. Uh, I have a revelation uh, a couple years ago, we did the, what's that called, Wendy, where you take the football and you pass it all the way up. 
first play, and we were down the beginning of it, and they had a bus that would take us up to the Hall of Fame, our two grandkids and us. Two grand, yeah. And uh, I got in the bus, and the lady got up and said, Sir, please sit here. <laughs> that was a revelation. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that would be a revelation. But in matters of faith, um, what I, what I want to emphasize here, it's not just about facts. It's not just about learning trivia. Um, but it's, it's more about that a eureka moment that takes us on to new knowledge. So do you have to have the eureka moment to have revelation and receive revelation? No. But I think what ultimately it has to do is affect the way you live your life, right? So if you just come to church and what you believe about God informs nothing about how you live, it has nothing to do with it, like you, you know all these, you read the Bible, these are all facts and figures. If that's how you live your life, you are not receiving the revelation of God. You just know the facts about the Bible. You know the stories, but you're not allowing them to move from here to here, to really inform your everyday living. Um, so, uh, Richard Niebuhr, this is a quote from Migliori, can't, I have to give him credit for it. Um, but Niebuhr speaks about the event of Revelation as being a luminous sentence. I just love that phrase. Revelation as being a luminous sentence that we come across in a difficult book from which we can go forward, we can go backward and attain understanding of the whole. So it kind of is that one piece, right? You're trying to figure this all out and you get to this one thing, you're like, oh, that, that makes some sense. Now I understand what he said 30 pages ago. Now, and now I'll understand the rest of the book a whole lot better. So revelation, the revelation that we receive of God is like that luminous sentence we come across in a book that makes the whole thing understandable. So what is that for us in God? Well, turning to matters of faith, um, we've got to ask ourselves the big question, even before I kind of jumped ahead. I've kind of skipped ahead a little bit because we needed to. Um, but... In matters of faith, how do we know God? Don't all jump at this at once. I actually want you to talk about it. Uh, how about three minutes? Talk about it at your table. How do we know God? Go. Question as about as broad as it can be, right? How do we know God? Do we have a volunteer from this table? How do we know no, God? The better half will answer. Okay. okay Either half. One flash, okay. right? Okay, well, we... You just want one question, one answer. The Bible. Whatever you want. Church. The physical. So we know God through the Bible, the church, Ooh, nature. physical world, nature. nature. And people, other Christians. And people, other Christians. Mm. Wow. Can anyone top that? <laughs> I'm joking. You don't have to top that. Do we have any other ideas? How do we know God? Experience. Okay. Holy Spirit. Right. Okay. Say again. Yeah, is there something built into us that we can just kind of have a knowledge? 
Is that where you're, is that where you're going? Yeah. I don't want to put words into your mouth. Yeah. Okay. Did I hear Dan, or are you going over here? No, it's the same. Oh. That would be sort of moral. Yeah. Google. What? <laughs> Google. How do we know God? Google. The answer is right there at your fingertips, right? Isn't that something? Uh, for better or worse, right? Yeah. Kent, did you have something to add here? I thought about the patterns that we see in the world when we see what happens to people that are out there that don't know God and what happens in their lives and how they sort of just deteriorate compared to hopefully our friends and family and those we know that are Christians and how their lives are lived. Um, you mentioned nature, creation, and I would say the first revelation that Paul talks about is through creation. Mm, yeah, right. I think you're A little bit, a little bit. We're going to get there. We're going to talk more specifically about the, the answers to this next week. But I'll give you a little preview um, that, yes, through nature, through other people, through the church, through consciousness, is it something built in? Um, and what I come to is I try to think broadly and historically before we ever had the scriptures, right, either in one book or a codex or a scroll, right, before we ever had that, did God make God's self known? Before there was Abraham, did God make God's self known? I sure think God was known to folks before we had a name for God. Uh, before we had all these stories that we've written down in the, the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, right? How was God known throughout the ages? Um, and certainly at a, po a certain point we can say this is now a full revelation of God. But was God hidden through all, all time? I don't think so, right? We're talking about looking around at nature and thinking about how we are made. We have this consciousness built within us that... Um, thinks about these things, right? So how is the spirit, right? The beautiful passage in Genesis is that the spirit was, was hovering over the, the, the deep from the very beginning. How is the spirit hovered over creation and spoken, in, spoken into our lives, whether we knew God or not? So um, are we able to investigate God? Do you have any God investigators? Have you ever heard of that? No? I don't know of any God investigators. Can you put God under a microscope? No? Has anyone tried? No? Okay. Uh, if we climbed the highest peak or descended to the lowest valley, can we find out more about God? No. So, even more broadly still, uh, can we do anything by ourselves to discover more about God? that God hasn't already revealed? No. The answer is no. So this is the beauty about divine revelation. And this is what I so love about this topic is that um, without God saying, here I am, we would never be able to know anything about God. God has to take that first step onto the stage and say, this is who I am. Here I am. 
know me. I want to be known and I want to know you. So I want to enter into a relationship. Um, but there's also this sense that God isn't showing us everything, right? Who still has questions for heaven? Have you, you have a list? You got a list of questions for heaven? The very fact that there is that list, you've got those questions, you're like, why did you make, come on, you made mosquitoes and bees that are going to stink? Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, we're all these, these things in the world that just don't quite make sense. Why did God do these things? We don't know. We don't have those answers. And there's questions about God, right? The biggest question of why do you allow evil to, to be in the world? Or uh, a question we had a few weeks ago, um, who was it that asked the question a few weeks ago of T.C. Ham of um, what was before God? Well, God, there's nothing before God, right? Um, those are the kinds of questions that we don't have the answers to. We don't even have access to have those kinds of answers or to ask the person who knows, right? Um, because those are only things that are known to the mind of God. So God steps out onto the stage but is not fully revealed to us. It's only partially revealed through story, through conversations. And just as our, um, the beautiful um, uh, lecture a few weeks ago from T.C. Ham, he was talking about how he knows his wife, right? I can write down all the facts about my wife and I can give you a book with all the facts about what my wife does, who she is, her past, or whatever. You still don't know my wife. You've never met her. You have to have a relational knowledge, right? So there's a sense of, there's great, there's um, different steps in the revelation. And we can know God through God's spirit in this life, but I've never seen Jesus face to face, right? I look forward to that day. I've never been in the presence, the full unmediated presence of God. That's something that we will get to one day, right? So there's this sense of we are on a journey and we've got some piece of this revelation, but not the whole. So I want to look at three passages from scriptures. Uh, we're going to start with Exodus chapter 3. I would love to have a reader, if I may. Exodus chapter 3. Who would like to read in a big, loud voice? Is that Judy? Was that a hand I saw over there, Judy? <laughs> Yeah, will you? 3, 1 through 12. It's a bit of a passage, but you got it. Thank you. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led that his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing. Yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at, the great, at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, 
I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Oh, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. <laughs> the cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. With the Hivites and the Perizzites. That was great. So, what do we learn about Revelation in this passage? What do we hear? Wendy? I hear that God initiates. God initiates. Yeah, great. The relationship. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's in verse 2, right? It wasn't like Moses went up this mountain looking for God, right? He just happens to be like, what is happening here? God is the one who appears to Moses. It is called the mountain of God, right? Um, but there in verse 2, he appears to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. The bush was burning but was not consumed. This weirdly mysterious phrase. And I think the point of, one of the points of that is from the very beginning, there's this question mark of what is going on here? I don't get this. God's revealing God's self and you're still like, oh, I, I don't have the eyes to interpret, to understand what's fully going on here. And that's, I think, part of the beauty of Revelation. We, we know something is happening. We know something special, mysterious is going on, but can't tell you exactly what. It's a bush. It's not totally consumed, but it's on fire. Um, and then uh, jumping down to verse 4, the Lord saw and God called to him. So there's this sense again, reinforcing, not, just, not only did God just appear and show up on the scene, but then God reaches out for connection, right? It's like that beautiful painting of of God in the cloud, reaching out to Adam, and right? Uh, they're almost touching. It's that kind of a, we're reaching out to know each other. And here, that's what God does. He doesn't just show up and say, hi, I'm here. He reaches out and says, Moses, I'm calling you. And then down in verse five, again, going back to the burning bush um, mentality here come no closer you can only come this far into this revelation you can't come all the way in because you would be burned up right? you can't come all the way in um, stop where you are and then take off your sandals 
from your feet because the ground on which you are standing is holy. What does holy mean? Hmm. Hmm. Again, this is part of who God is, right? Is any other ground holy? Not, not right now. Not at this point, right? This ground on which God's presence is made manifest in the burning bush, this is holy. What is holy? Holy in the Hebrew is kodesh. It means set apart, distinct, different from anything else. We know that this God, we don't exactly know what's going on with God yet, but we know God, this burning bush, something is different than anything else in all of creation. And then, God says, I, he finally reveals himself. He calls out and says, okay, stop there. You can't come closer because you are in holy ground. I am here. That makes everything around this holy. If you step in any closer, you'll be burned up. The great image I like to think of is, uh, it's a little odd, but radioactivity, right? So if you have a, you know, a bomb go off as radioactive energy, at the epicenter is where the most concentrated form of that energy is. As you go out, it's less and less dangerous. Same thing with God, right? There's a sense of holiness of God, and as it goes out, it's you know, not less holy, but it's less permeated with God. Dan? Oh, by removing his shoes. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, there's a sermon or two in there for sure. Yeah, <laughs> by removing his shoes. Yeah, I mean, I, the ways I've heard about it before is that, yeah, our shoes, the shoes are a symbol for what separates us. And are we supposed to, like God is saying, I want you close, but I don't want you so close that you're going to get hurt. And those shoes are keeping you from this ground, which is holy. It's keeping you from holiness, right? Some, I, I'm, I have a good feeling that the, the church fathers would have said in a, an allegorical way, the shoes represented sin, right? Something that separates you from the holiness of God. Yeah. They're also filthy, right? I mean, he's, he's been working. Absolutely. There's a sense of filth. and It's not just, not just simple separation, but it's also they're filthy. They're dirty, right? So... Um, I just want to zero in on verse 6 and 7, and then we can move on. We may just move on. Uh, yeah. So verse 6, God says then, come here, stop right there, take off your shoes, this is holy, and then God finally says who he is, right? Because Moses is like, I don't know what's going on here. This could be anybody at this point, right? He was in this polytheistic world where this could be, Anubis, this could be Seth, this could be Baal. Who knows who is, who is speaking here, right? He has no idea. And this is, I think, a turning point where he, God says, I am the God of your father. Not just any God, I'm your father's God. Abraham's God, Isaac and Jacob's God. Whoa, whoa. And then Moses hid his face. I love this. Again, as it relates to Revelation, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. What did he see that scared him so much? What I love is that uh, 30 chapters later, right, um, in, in Exodus 32 actually, um, is when Moses then asks, show me your glory. What I, what I saw on that mountain all those years ago, I want... 
to get a taste of that again, right? Um, anyhow, so we've got, you know, I want to jump over to Acts chapter 9. We're going to skip the Isaiah, although it's good. We'll skip over Isaiah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and there's this sense of, of legacy that God has been known throughout the generations. And that's one of the, that's, for me, that's one of the most beautiful things about passing down faith is that it's not just my faith, but it was my father's faith and my father's father and all the way down. And, and the sense that as God has been faithful, we've seen it. We've seen how God has been faithful. And even if you don't have it in your direct family, look at the stories of scripture. Look at the stories of the saints to know God has been faithful and so God will continue to be faithful. Uh, before we jump, do you want to read or did you want to, do you have a comment there, Fred? Comment, question. Okay. Uh, you asked a rhetorical question a few minutes ago. Uh-oh. But two passages come to my mind. One is John 1, 1 oh, through sure. 5. In the beginning was the word. And the other, and I think it's Romans, but don't hold me to it, Paul, that we only know in part. Oh, yeah. We only know in part. Yeah. Um, yeah, very appropriate verses to consider here. Okay, let's move on then uh, to Acts 9. I'm going to just read this one because it's here. It's open. Um, this is the conversion of Saul, also known as Paul, and just as a quick aside, there is this, I, I don't know how this got started, but lots of people, I've seen this printed in books. It's not the case. Lots of people say, oh, Saul's name was changed to Paul, right? Who's heard this before? A few of us. Not the case. His name is the same, right? It's as if I spe went into a Spanish-speaking country and they started calling me Miguel. You wouldn't say, oh, you changed your name. It's like, no, that's just my Span the Spanish version of my name, right? So Saul is, is in one language, Paul is in another. Just a minor thing, but it's a pet peeve of mine. Um, okay, so... Right. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked him for the letters to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, just like we heard Moses, Moses. But this time the voice says, why do you persecute me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So this is all, the sense here is almost he's been hurt when a revelation comes, right? This isn't just a, this isn't just a simple um, everyday kind of thing. This is a dangerous revelation, right? Put your hard hat on if you want to know God and see God. 
And we don't, he sees this flashing light, right? In verse three, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell and hears a voice. So there's no actual seeing. It's not a sense of if you get closer, you're gonna get hurt. It's not the same thing. Um, but there's that question, right? Named two times, just like Moses. But the question is, why do you persecute me? And in the next verse, who are you, Lord? I, I've, I've heard many people uh, who love this verse because it's as if he knows that he's speaking to the Lord from the onset. <sighs> I struggle with this because in the Greek, there's no such thing as capital letters. Well, there are capital letters, but it was going to be all capital letters or all lowercase letters. There's no sense of capital and lowercase like we have. So this word Lord is not capitalized. The word kurios can also just mean sir, mister. So it's as if he's like, well, who are you, sir? Um, so I wouldn't read too much into that. Again, topic for a different day. But um, the idea here is, again, we think we hear this as Jesus, right? Jesus is stepping forward and saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he goes blind, which I love, right? Because it's as though he's seen something he's not supposed to see. Or there's, he's gotten too close. There's something going on there. That I just, I don't know what it is. But um, do we have any other thoughts about this passage before we move on? Okay. So what Migliori, I'm going to go back to my perch over here. What Migliori writes is that revelation is the disclosure of the character and purpose of God. And when it is received, it radically changes the lives of its recipients. Saul, Paul, will never be the same. The revelation, neither will Moses, right? Moses was just called into a new way of being. If he didn't have that mountaintop experience, Moses would have gone about his life like normal. He would never have been changed. But this revelation changed him. And it's not just one more item of information. It's not just a fact, a piece of trivia, not just one of the many things we know or think we know. But when God is revealed, everything is seen in the new light. William Abraham, again, this is Migliori writing. William Abraham helpfully described Revelation as a threshold concept. So what is a threshold? Right? It's the entrance of something new, Right, the really the only way, the only days I hear a threshold besides theological books any day anymore is when you think about, and I don't think we even do this anymore, when a groom would carry the bride over the threshold of a new house. Right, um, I don't think anyone does. Does anyone do that anymore? Sure, probably. There's somebody probably out there who does. But revelation is this threshold concept. It's like crossing into something new, like the threshold of a house. So if you look on the outside of a house, you can see some of it from the outside. You can maybe say, okay, it looks, it looks small. It doesn't look, it look, oh, it looks big. Oh, it's got to be grand inside. But actually, when you, when you step over that threshold, all that was hidden from those walls suddenly becomes new, and you enter into another world. How many times have you heard said or said yourself, wow, I had no idea this house is so big, Right? It's bigger, it looks bigger on the inside than it does on the outside. Or just the opposite. You're like, this place looks huge. Why is this not bigger? You have those moments, yes? Am I crazy here? Am I the only one having these? 
Okay. Revelation is like that. We have gone from unknowing to knowing. Okay. So, I know I'm harping on these, these ideas here, but uh, I think there's a lot to be said about it. And I think this lays the foundation for everything that comes after throughout this whole class. of so how do we know? Are we born, uh, question for all, are we born with a full knowledge of who God is? No. Can we ever fully know God in this lifetime? No. But here's a question that I don't actually have the answer to. So I wonder what you think. Is it possible that we will ever know all of God, even in all of eternity? When we, have, when we take that list of questions and we unroll it, right, and we say, okay, what happened to the dinosaurs? Why did you make mosquitoes? And what, you know, you get through all of those, and then will you know everything there is to know about God? What about after eternity? Well, there's no after eternity. Eternity is forever. Can we ever come to a place where we fully know God? This is hard, right? Because again, we're trying to imagine eternity, which is hard in itself. And then we're trying to talk about the limits of who God is, which we also don't know. I hope that one day we can, in eternity, we can say, oh, now I finally get everything. I finally get who God is, why God does everything God does, and why God did everything God did, and will do. I get it. I hope that happens. I don't think it will. I don't think it will. Because I believe there will still be more to find out, right? We can talk about everything God has done or who, everything that God is, but what will God do? God will still leave us guessing, I think. So even while we confess um, what God has revealed about God's self, we must also recognize God remains and does... Um, God remains God, and God does not become a possession at our disposal. We do not ever own God. And that's important to, to recognize and to say. But I have this, this sense that some in the broader church like to think that they own God. I have got the corner on the market, so let me tell you, you know, Jesus is coming soon. Have you repented of all your sins because you're going to hell? I, I've got it all figured out. I know everything there is to know. I own God. Because I've read this Bible, you know, front to back 70 times. Um, that's not me. I'm just saying, right? Um, uh, some people think, now that I have all these facts, I own God. That's not quite right. Knowing and confessing things of God, things about God, doesn't mean we have a corner on the market. Um. As I was preparing for this class, a song came to mind that I'm very sad did not make it into the Glory to God hymnal. It was in the blue 1991 uh, Presbyterian hymnal called The Lone Wild Bird. Do you know this song? Yeah? Um, and I, I'm not going to sing it for you right now. I'm just going to... St- I know, I know, I know. Um, if we had the hymnal, I'd, I'd do it, but I don't want to... The melody is a little odd, and I think that's probably why it didn't get included. Um, But the text of the first verse came to mind. It's um, talking about the Holy Spirit. And the text goes, The lone wild bird in lofty flight is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight. And I am thine, I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Each secret thought is known to thee, my whole life's path, whate'er it be. 
my days, my deeds, my hopes, my fears, my deepest joys, my silent tears. The ends of earth are in thy hand. Oh, isn't that a phrase? The ends of earth are in thy hand. The seas dark deep and far off land, and I am thine, I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Beautiful, beautiful uh, text. And what it helps me to remember is that first phrase especially, the lone wild bird, right? So think about a wild bird at flight, right? This is something that hasn't been caged, domesticated. Well, this is talking all about the Holy Spirit, God at work. And how is it that God is alone, right? There's no other like this. There's no other God but our God. But wild? God is wild. I love that image because there's this sense of I can't control it, but I can marvel at the beauty. I can't control it, but I marvel at the beauty. And then in verse 3, I've already said aloud, but I'll say again, the ends of earth are in thy hand. The seas dark deep and far off land. Everything belongs to God. Does it belong to us? No. Did we, right, the questions that, um, in the conversation between God and Job, right, do you, were you the one who made these stars? No. You have no idea how these things happen, right? Even the, the smartest scientists with all the PhDs still can't explain all the things in the universe. And um, I'm not going to say, well, so there is God, right? Because someday we'll know more. But still, we will never know it all. And there's this sense and that's just with science. That's just with the physical world around us. Um, we'll never know it all. And at a certain point, no human can know everything, right? As we've seen in the last um, 100, 150 years, everyone is specializing, right? So that means that you, you have a certain knowledge base, but you don't know these other things. The same thing, right? There is just too much to know about everything. Who knows it? All God and God only. This lone wild bird. There's nothing else like him. And he's so wild we can't domesticate him. We can't control him. We can't own him. But we can know him. We can appreciate the beauty of God. And I've got just... I've got two more minutes. Um, the clock still needs... We still need to fix that clock someday. I'll, I'll close with these and then um, we'll talk more next week. I'll close with a, a, a quote from Migliori, 26 and 27. I'm jumping around though, so stay with me. Um, there is an emphasis on the freedom, the mystery, and the hiddenness of God in Revelation. Remember, he steps off on stage, but we still don't really see everything, right? The mystery or hiddenness of God is a theme that is deeply rooted in the Christian tradition. If on the basis of revelation, theology dares to make affirmations about God, it should never be forgotten that our affirmations cannot fully comprehend. We can't ever fully say everything there is about God. But there are other ways in which we can speak and say things that are not God, right? God is infinite, that is without end. God is not bad, right? God is all good, all knowing. We, there are different ways of talking about God. But Augustine declares that God is always greater, however much we have grown. 
Aquinas frequently reminds us that God remains largely hidden to finite human reason, writing that no created intellect can comprehend God wholly. We can study God. That can be our sub-discipline, right? Just study theology our whole life long, and there's still more to learn, always. Will we ever have God all figured out? No. And I'll, I'll close with this, is that implicit or explicit in many of the variations of the theme of hiddenness of God in the Christian tradition is the confession that in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, God is truly revealed but at the same time, paradoxically, still hidden. We still cannot access and know all there is to know about God, Jesus, the Spirit. There's this sense of otherness coming back to holy. God is holy. And on our path towards God, we are made holier. And we come to know a little bit more day by day by day. But we will never know all there is to know. We've got more to talk about, but that'll have to wait for next week. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks again for the gift of this day and the opportunity to consider the ways that you have shown yourself to us. As you revealed yourself in the burning bush to Moses, saying, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. God, help us to have those experiences where you reveal yourself to us and we can say that you are in our midst. Let us take off our shoes and to know where we are standing is truly holy, set apart and made holy by your presence. Be with us, God, in our everyday life. May we catch glimpses of you and may we stand in awe at the mystery how you've revealed yourself and yet you remain hidden. You remain unknown to us even still but we thank you that in revealing yourself you have extended a hand for relationship you've extended a hand so that we can come to a saving relationship with you may we never take that for granted may we stand at this in this awe knowing that you are bigger than we can imagine but that you love us, you care for us, and you made us. May that image and that love stay with us and hold us dear. In Jesus' name, amen.